fundraiser so we're uh, trying to get Pier 1 a new building and I think that's pretty cool 50 years they've been working out of this place is pretty awesome so anyway uh, I guess I'll start by uh, telling you a little bit about my quadriplegia uh, most people uh, uh, like me uh, 40 years ago I never even pushed a wheelchair I never saw anybody in a wheelchair. And there's like, I don't know, maybe three or four of us in Homer. And uh, it just um, pretty amazing to me. But um, Barbara and I were back east on vacation at a break in my fishing time and we're visiting my sister and uh, rolled the car over, hit my head, broke my neck and rolled three times and went down a gully and we stopped the car and Barbara and I, either one, um, had a drop of blood on us. And I told her, I said, well, can you get out? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, come over here and hold my door. And then I realized I couldn't move my leg, couldn't move my arms. So uh, just so you people know, uh, I don't want to get too choked up about it, but most people don't know what quadriplegia is. So I'm paralyzed now from my armpits down. So you could take my hand and put it in the hot water, and I wouldn't know it. Uh, there's no no feeling. I have no finger movement. So I'm just talking head, and so I can I can do that pretty good. So that's why I'm that's why I'm here uh, going to uh, tell you guys a bunch of BS. <laughs> because uh, there's lots of fishermen I know in town. They got way more sea stories than I have. But uh, they're all full of BS too. But they're not—they're not—they're uh, not brave enough to get up here and do this. But, but uh, since I'm in a wheelchair and kind of stuck at home all the time, uh, uh, this is what I'm trying to do to uh, uh, help the theater. So, here we go. Um, first of all, uh, I just thought uh, you might uh, recognize that song was 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 by Third Day, and um, they're a Christian. Uh, Rock, song, rock group, and uh, they uh, became our, uh, our uh, theme song, uh, I'll Be Your Miracle. And we're still looking for a miracle today, and we believe in miracles. So it may happen one day, 
may not. Um, but anyway, I gotta do these things in such a way that I, I don't get too crazy choked up. Um, but you, after I was uh, after I was uh, in the accident, um, I was like in intensive care for three or four months on a ventilator. I broke my neck at C4, which is right behind your Adam's apple. C3, you're on a ventilator forever. C4 controls your finger movement, and I don't have any finger movement. And uh, if you were C5, somebody could probably be moving their arms and use their hands. And so when I did that, I swore to everybody I was gonna walk within a year, and uh, that didn't happen. We went to University of Washington. I put my name on every uh, guinea pig list from from Switzerland to any every country in the world trying to be a guinea pig because I thought that's the only way I'm going to get fixed. And uh, then uh, UCLA called us up one night and said, "Come down here. We're gonna we're gonna try to fix you." And I went right on, man. So we're gonna. Barbara and I had to move to LA, and here we've been in Homer for 40 years. <laughs> and we had to go to LA. I mean, that's like God awful, right? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry if anybody's from LA, but I mean, city, city stuff was like not where we wanted to be. But we did it, and we had to stay there for three years. And they poked me, and they shocked me, and they did every kind of thing they could do. And after three years, uh, they decided they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So. I came home, and uh, then I had to uh, then I had to try to figure out what it was going to be like to live my life in a wheelchair, and that was that was tough. Still is. Uh, had a, a great community uh, surrounding us. More people, almost half of all of you guys probably have helped me some way or another, and Barbara, and. Uh, if uh, if she wasn't here, um, I'd tell her her angel wings are getting so long they're dragging on the ground. <laughs> and uh, by the way, we just did our 45 years of anniversary. Uh, uh, my brother Mike married us over in China Food. And uh, from there, um, Barb, your, your camera is going crazy. Um, and that's one of my, that's one of my favorite uh, topics right there. Not a topic, but that, that, that um, bronze statue and that uh, bronze engraving there uh, means a lot to me because I can remember years ago when we first started fishing in the early 70s, late 70s, the old halibut fishermen would tell me that, that uh, back in the day, uh, there, there weren't in the 30s. There were there were no fish to halibut to be found. So much so that they would they would put the, the halibut's fleet, who were the schooners, would put themselves on trip alternations. So they were they were voluntarily. There was no government that was telling them when you could fish or when you couldn't. But they knew that they all couldn't fish at the same time. And and then in the uh, 80s, there was that big time when you remember everybody here in town was going out and catching halibut from doctors to lawyers to fishermen to whoever that could put a hook in the water. And it was just crazy with fish. And then after the 80s, then it went down again. And so, you know, I've come to realize through my years of fishing that 
you know, everybody gets gets really, really excited about a stock crash and they go, oh, this is the end of the world and we're never going to see another one of those again. And in some areas like Hatchback Bay, that's true. I mean, we haven't seen we haven't seen king crab in 30 years here, you know. But um, and but in a, in a lot of other areas, uh, you know, and especially out on the uh, uh, on the deep water edge, you see the fish stocks go up and down, and we think, oh, we overfished it, or we didn't overfish it, or there's you know global warming, and all those sorts of things. But uh, the old fishermen that really have seen it and watched it. They, they, they know what's up, and it's, it's not to be said that it's all going to be gone tomorrow, but it could be, you know, so uh, that's just one of the reasons I like that thing so much. So we can roll on to the next picture, I guess, Barb, and kind of start this thing. And huh, That picture's taken when I was uh, uh, 11. Uh, my brother Mike had just graduated from uh, Virginia Military Institute and got stationed in Anchorage. And he came home one day and he told my mom and dad, he says, I'm taking Pat with me. Oh, and I'm jumping up and down on the bed like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so he and I traveled from Virginia to, um, to Alaska in about three weeks. And we put a canoe on top, slept in the back of the camera shell, camped every night and went all the way across the United States and up to Alaska. And that was, our, that was in 1965, right after the earthquake. And so uh, that's kind of when we started. Funny picture there where we, we must have been reading Outdoor Life and all those wildlife magazines. And, and look at that great big knife I got. I mean, like, what the hell are you going to do with that? <laughs> I guess we thought we would come up and skin a bar, you know. So, so we thought we were somebody in those days. It's so funny when both of us look back at those pictures to where we are now, and it's like, holy cow. Anyway. Uh, yeah, well, and, and so then uh, uh, I came up when I was 11, and then my mom and dad would let me come back up three or four times in the summer until about the time I was 16, and I thought, boy, in the summer there's no girls in Homer, hardly at all. You know what I'm going? And I was starting to think about girls, so I, I went back home and stayed until I was 18, and then that was about the time of the Vietnam War and the draft and all that sort of stuff, and everybody's running to Alaska those days. And... Uh, uh, my dad and I talked about it and realized, he said, well, you got to have an education or you're going to get drafted right away, which for a lot of my senior high school buddies went to the draft immediately after that. And uh, uh, I went to, uh, I signed up to be an apprentice in, a, in the shipyard there in Virginia, and that was a four-year school. So you went, year, well, you went to school year-round, and I'd write my brother letters and say, man, I'm going to quit. I want to come to Alaska. All those guys are making big money, and there's a pipeline, and there's king crab, and all of that. And he talked me into staying for the four years. And the, the day I graduated was the day I left and drove right straight back here. So then after I got right back here, uh, uh, I met this lady, my sweet little wife, only about a month before I came to Alaska. The other girlfriend that I'd been dating for years we decided we had a split because I was going to Alaska no matter what. And then I bumped into Barbara. We fell in love. And, uh, and uh, about two or three months later, after Mike sent us up in the mountains to build his cabin, uh, uh, she was sending me letters. And Bill Kreft was flying overhead to me and Kevin Seidlinger, dropping us all these letters from our girlfriends. And we're up there in the 49 inches of snow on the side of the mountain. And, and, uh, by the time, I, as soon as I got out of there, I sent her a plane ticket. 
she came to Alaska and she says, all right, I'll do it for one year. And I picked her up in a tin skiff down here in the harbor, took her across the bay to that cabin that she's got there. And uh, Mike and Diane gave us that cabin and that piece of property for our wedding present. And uh, that was our start. And uh, on day 360 something, she says, I'm not sure if I'm staying or not. <laughs> and uh, finally she said yes. We got married and uh, that was the start of it all. That's kind of what we turned the cabin into a number of years after 10 years or so and our son was born and you know how you add on the back and another shed roof on the side and another little room and that's kind of the way that went. And then uh, in the next picture I think uh, it takes it about what it is now but that took us 25 years before we finally developed our real home over there where we could stay forever. And if I had my say about it, I'd, uh, I'd be over there every waking minute the rest of my life. But this, uh, this situation is not let it be that way. So um, we're just doing the best we can, making it one day at a time. And it's still a lot of times uh, this, being a quadriplegic, it's, it's certainly one day at a time a lot of times. So we do the best we can. And, Thank God for this lady I got next to me or I wouldn't even be here. And so funny, so f not funny, but the first day I came back and all this time, I'd never told anybody about that, but I'm going, you know, I got back and I went, I'm gonna get in that skiff of mine and we're gonna go across the bay. And while we're going across the bay, I'm gonna go up there and open that hatch and I'm gonna get that anchor and I'm gonna wrap that chain around my leg and I'm gonna throw that anchor over and I'm gonna be done with it, you know? And then I got there and I got the skiff and I went, hell, I can't even get up there to get the anchor. <laughs> and I never, it just kind of never even came to my realization. It was like, I, 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 I did plan on doing it, but it was just like, you can't even, you can't even take your life you want to when you get this messed up. So you got you to press on. So um, that was my, uh, one of my very first skiffs. Uh, my brother got one, I got one, built by Ed Opime over in Kodiak back in the day, and boy, we thought we were hot stuff with that. And there's my grandson in there with me. And uh, that got parked in that very spot after I rolled that over and almost died. So after that, we never moved it. So it's uh, growing, uh, growing um, trees, flowers out of it now, and that's about, that's about it for the life of it for now. And uh, what you got there on the next page? Uh, oh yeah, there's, uh, there's me when I was a little hippie for coming, coming to Homer, and I would come to Homer with all the rest of the hippies, and old Clem Tillian, Clem Tillian would hardly talk to me on the dock, you know, with another one of them hippies coming up to Homer, you know. We don't need more hippies up here. But, and, and years later, later, Clem and I came to be great friends, and he was a great mentor to me, you know, and really, really helped me out through the fishery all those years, and I had nothing but uh, great respect for him. So that was my, uh, that was my pet crow. And we had, Barbara and I had pet crows three or four times in the spring over in China Poot. There was a rookery of a couple hundred that lived there. And I'd go climb the tree and get in the nest and get the baby out. And then we'd start feeding the baby every day in the box. And when he'd start flying, we took him on a boat with us. And uh, we had a tendering contract. And uh, he, he went on a boat with us. And on the boat, the only thing we had to feed him was, was salmon skeins from the salmon row. And old man, he just loved to gobble that down. So we have all kinds of salmon on the boat, of course. And we just take the eggs out and drop them right down his throat. Well, after about a year or so, he got to be, he got to be quite a mess. But 
when he was th when, when he was there with the for the first years, we we'd drive away in a skiff, and if you left him going to town, he'd fly behind you and get in the skiff and go to town with you and come back. And, <laughs> and, and his first word name was Spot because he'd always sit on his sit on your shoulder because we'd feed him by whistling to him. And when you whistle, he'd come out of the tree and sit on your shoulder, and then he'd poop on your back. So you, <laughs> so you had always had a spot on your back, so that's how we did it. And um, moving on down through the pictures, we'll get to the, the questions here in a minute. But um, uh, there's old Kirk Rutzbeck on the Wilson. And uh, uh, that, that was, uh, that was uh, my first skipper that gave me a chance to go fishing. There he is back there. Raise your hand, Kirk. Yeah, so uh, Kirk was my first skipper and taught me a lot. And uh, from there, uh, we moved on around and, and uh, I was trying to fish and work with my brother over at the lodge and I realized that, you know, I had to go fishing to make enough money to get started. And, and uh, this picture is of the invader and uh, that was the front cover of National Fisherman. And we took that over at Nuka Glacier. And um, um, when we were tendering, and so we went one day right up in front of the glacier, got out in the raft, and pulled up in front of that ice. And then uh, everybody in that town knows uh, the famous artist Jim Bunsack. Uh, Jim Bunsack painted that picture, and uh, we have it in our home now, and it's uh, it's awesome. Uh, and and if you haven't if you haven't seen Jim Bunsack's work, oh my God, it's amazing. It is amazing stuff. So um, there's a picture of it back in. Uh, the 1940s probably. It was built in 1928, and you can see it got a big saying on it in those days, and uh, it lived in Homer here for maybe 20 years, and uh, uh, Earl Hillstrand, John Hillstrand's dad, bought it originally uh, out of Seattle from uh, Chris Peterson, who had it built in Seattle for uh, saining, and uh, when it was sold, then Earl brought it up here, and his son, John Hillstrand, who is, uh, he's passed away now, but he was a little older than I was, uh, or am. Um, I'm not passed away yet. I'm still a talking head, so. Um, anyway, um, John was very successful with the boat, and uh, then uh, the boat went on to uh, uh, Lloyd Collins bought it, and then uh, Dennis Fry bought it, and Dennis named it the Mariah, and then a lot of you might know it from the harbor, being in the harbor here as the Mariah. And then when uh, Dan Verhuesen wanted to buy it, he wanted me to get in as a partner with him, and I didn't, ha I didn't have much money or anything to even offer, and I went to the bank, and the bank wanted my first born and my rifle and everything else to try to have any kind of collateral, and uh, I was pretty frustrated with that, because my dad always said pay cash for everything, you know, and I didn't have any credit card list. Well, there wasn't even credit cards then. What am I talking about? So, so anyway, uh, I, got it, I got into it for a small percentage and ran it a lot. And uh, Danny and I were partners. And um, um, just to give you an idea, you see that, that pilot house on top of that invader. They changed the invader. Uh, go back one, Barbara, uh, to the, the, see how the pilot house had changed. Dennis Fry and, and a lot of, a lot of the uh, local builders here in town took the old house off and put that in so you could be inside all the time and then go back the next way again. They changed it to that, I mean from that, and uh, so the house, if many of you remember, sat on East End Road there at Dennis Fry's house for 10, 20 years, 
And when we got involved in the boat, I went to Dennis and I talked him into letting me buy it from him, and we turned it into this. And so now it's a now it's a sauna on my dock, and I built I built a special dock just for it because saunas in Alaska always burn down one way or another, you know. A little too much drinking, a little too much partying, and next thing you know, somebody didn't close the damper, and uh-oh, you know. So I made a separate dock for that, and while I got that up there, um, there's a little uh, blurb on the front for my, we turned the house in across the bay to a VRBO. So if you got parents and family that comes down in the summertime and needs a place to stay, we'd be very grateful to have you. So um, that's what we're doing with it now. You see the little swing there, that's my little granddaughter. She's down here somewhere um, in my swing. And I always call that my swing away your worries swing. So when I'd get all stressed out and go across the bay, I'd always get in that swing and just let her rip, you know, and it, it feels so good. Keep going to the next couple there. So th this one is the Republic. And, uh, you know, they were all built, built in the early 1900s. They were the halibut schooners that were the most respected in the fleet. They started in Seattle. They're almost all Norwegians. Uh, that one's, uh, that one's uh, um, uh, Dewey Torgenshoel, his name, and uh, it was owned by his father, and now his son runs it, and his son calls me up all the time when he's delivering, and he's about 30, and he's talking to me about this fish and where we're at and what we're doing, you know, and a couple of those guys call me all the time and talking to me on the phone. I just love it, you know, to keep up with them. I'm just flattered that they would even talk to me. And the Van C was uh, another one of the super highline uh, boats. And in those, in those days, those boats were built in 1900. And in, you know, the 30s and the 40s, those boats were getting pretty beat up because um, they just couldn't, they weren't making enough money to really pay to keep them up. But nowadays, those boats are probably in the best shape that they've ever been in 100 years. I mean, they are fantastically maintained now. Because, you know, the halibut price went up, and then the IFQs came in, and uh, they shut down a lot of the things that were holding the halibut fishery back. And those guys are like the best of the best. I mean, when we started with, with our, our own boat, the GDB, all we did is try to, try to emulate what they did. Because they knew how to do it from the very get-go. Um, so let's see, we've got to go one more, I guess, or two there. And once we, uh, once we sold the Judy B, that was the boat that Barbara and I were going to retire on for our golden years, and we brought it up through Southeast. And after we had sold the Judy B, and just before I had had the accident, and uh, uh, we took, uh, I, I spent a month down in Seattle refurbishing it because I got it on a, on a Marshall sale. And um, uh, I called Barbara up one August and I said, well, do you think you and I could just run this up to Seattle, up to inside by ourselves? And she went, heck yeah, and she flew down. We got on there and we took 45 days to come from Seattle to here. And we hit every hot spring in every village. <laughs> and we anchored up every night and uh, dropped the crab pot and the shrimp pot and glass of wine in the end of the evening. And oh man, it was like the best vacation we ever took. <laughs> and uh, then three or four years later, well, I guess it was a little bit longer than that, but right after that was when uh, uh, I got injured and we had to sell the boat and that was that. So um, this one is the same boat again, the Bear. 
but that's uh, pretty much in honor of, uh, of uh, Bob Moss. And uh, Bob was a longtime homerite and a longtime fisherman. And every year, he, till up till he was probably 75, he put a Christmas tree in the rigging. <laughs> so I loved it. Charlie Rader loved it. He was one of the ones that was, would always do it. We tried to get the whole thing going every year to put Christmas trees up in the harbor. But it's kind of hard to talk guys into when the harbor was frozen in December to go climbing up in a rigging with a damn Christmas tree and light it up every night. And the harbor master was worried about circuit breakers blowing and the whole work, you know. So it, uh, it lasted for a little while. So um, from here, I think... Yeah, worried about it. So you can go that one more. That's my, uh, that's my son when we first had the invader uh, taking a bath going across the Gulf. So that was kind of an old keepsake for Barb and I. All right, we can, we can kind of stop there. And I'm trying to break this up a little different because I've done a bunch of fundraisers for different things throughout the, uh, throughout the since I've been injured anyway. And uh, if any of you looked at the little sheet and have something that you're interested in or want to know about, I can BS you pretty good, but I'll try to keep it straight. So uh, go ahead. Uh, jumping seals, is that what it is? Sea lions. Sea lion, jumping sea lion, jumping sea lions. Yeah, we, um, in, in Dutch, when we'd come back into a trip, uh, with a trip from, uh, from out in the Aleutians, um, I'd always have the guys take the skiff, put it overboard, get the pressure washer, and wash all the green all the way off the yellow stripe around the thing wasn't their favorite thing to do. And so between the six of them, they'd usually flip a coin or take turns, and somebody had to get out while everybody else was getting the rest of the work down and kind of shine the hull up while we were going to be laying in town. And we tried to keep that reputation going. Well, the, the, some of the guys, they'd be out there in the skiff, and maybe they'd have a piece of bait or something laying on the skiff from when we were fishing. Well, sea lion would come sniffing up there, you know, and then they think it's all real cool, and they'd, they'd hang a piece of a bait out there to him, and next thing you know, the daggone sea lion's putting his flipper up on the side of the boat and about turning him over, you know. And I got all really PO'd at him, and I was getting mad with him. I said, that guy, he'll, he'll grab you and take you under, and uh, he didn't. And then the next thing you know, we, um, I guess I was guilty in part of this, too. <laughs> but, but anyway, they were, they were standing on the side of the rail, on the boat, which when you stand on the deck, you're maybe five, six feet off the water, and they'd hold her hand off. They'd hold her hand out with a big herring, and that sea lion would just come right up and take it right out of your hand. So we thought, how high will we go? So I go up on the forecastle deck, which is another eight feet, and then I get on top of the freezer box, which is another four feet. We figured it was about 17 feet. And we'd hold that herring out there, and you'd see him swim right down there, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be like getting a running start at it. He'd just be under the water and just one big, and this was a monster sea lion, not just a little one. And he would just foosh him. I bet we fed him 10 like that. But they're pretty amazing creatures of what they can do. Besides, killer whales love to eat them. And uh, we'd be around the rookery sometimes, and here'd come up a killer whale. when we'd be in there looking at the rookery, and this was, this was before in the early years, you can't go into the rookeries now anymore with a fishing boat, but we'd go right up there by where the uh, rookery was, and if I blew the horn, you'd see the sea lions 
peel off the rookery and then the Mr. Whale man, a big old bull would come right in there and he knew right where all the little guys had their little ramp to come in and he'd just be tearing water up and I guess we were trying to make him be happy so he wouldn't come eat our black cod. <laughs> so, um, go ahead, anybody else got more questions about? How about women thrown overboard? Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Women thrown overboard. I, I, don't have a, I, don't, I don't have a picture of that. Well, we could put the boat up. Yeah. Yeah. What was the elbow room fiasco? I'll tell you that one next. <laughs> so the women thrown overboard is we were doing um, we were doing 40 day trips on the Judy B, and um, nobody did 40 day trips in those days. But we could go. We were a freezer boat, so we could go to the end of the Aleutians and start on grounds that hardly anybody had ever been on before. And you'd find amazing big fish and everything about it was like untouched. And um, so we get ready to leave town and lo and behold, I think, I think one of the yahoos when the, when the uh, fishing game came down on the boat, everybody had to show their license and everything else. And, and uh, the local uh, police were with them and this one guy had a warrant, so take him off the boat, you know. He got a warrant for him. He's going to have, have to go stay a few nights with us, and we got to leave. So I told the guy, I said, look, when you're up at the bar, you got to find us a crew member. It's not like when you're in Dutch Harbor. You can just go find anybody anywhere or even make phone calls or whatever because you didn't want to stop the boat and wait and wait and wait. And then next thing you know, if you did wait, the airplane couldn't get in for three days and all of the, all the scenarios, we need to turn around and go fishing. So... The guys come back and say, oh, yeah, we got this really good deckhand. And uh, they had a lot of experience and uh, going to be down here the first thing in the morning and we'll leave as soon as it happens. Well, it was a female. I didn't mind that because we had, we had had a couple ladies that fished with us for like a couple of them, two years maybe, and fished the whole season. I mean, one thing about ladies is their hands are small and their dexterity of their fingers for baiting hooks, which an average crew member... Uh, bait 1,200 hooks in a day, so that that hand work and it wasn't all it wasn't heavy work like trying to get on a king crab boat and push around a 700 pound pot. So we could take some ladies aboard, and we did have a couple ladies that were really really good. But anyway, they tell me here comes this lady, and I said okay, throw your stuff aboard, we're leaving. And it was like, you know, you don't have time to do an interview, you don't have time to do a police report. They, I mean, it's like, there was no internet, there was no nothing. It was just like, put your stuff aboard, here we go. So what do we do? We go all the way, all the way to uh, Kiska, which is three days of running before we even start fishing. And as we noticed around the galley table and everything, she had quite the potty mouth, you know? And we're going, oh boy, where did you guys find this one? And they all, somebody liked her or whatever, I don't know what the deal ended up being, but, but they, they started to, um, the, the crew, she was going to be a processor. So when you're a processor, you don't actually do any of the fishing. But at the end of the night, if we fish an 18-hour day and add 10,000 pounds, that had to get frozen overnight. So there'd be two people that we hired as uh, processors. And that's kind of how you started. And I think we were paying them 200 bucks a day at the time. They'd be down there putting all the fish in a pan, like sardines in a can, and then put them in a freezer. And, you know, it'd take five hours or something while we were sleeping. And then as soon as they'd get 
through, they'd turn the freezers on, and we'd wake up and start hauling gear again, and they'd go to sleep. Well, about three hours into my sleep, one of the, one of the guys uh, comes upstairs, he says, Pat, you better get down here right now. You better get right down here right here now. And I said, what's going on? He says, he says well, Todd's going to throw her overboard. <laughs> and I'm going, what? And so I, I come out there, and I get a hold of Todd, and she is just screaming, every swear word in the book you can hear. She's ripping it out at this guy. And Todd, is, he was a little Norwegian kid. He was, he was tall and real slight of frame, and he would, he would piss off some of the other fishermen once in a while. Where they, they'd throw him up against the bulkhead when he was getting too mouthy and kind of rough him up a little bit. But, but um, this time it was Todd's turn, and he, got, he, he was down in a little room that was like 16 feet across and four foot wide, and that was a processing room. And he had to crawl up a ladder, you know, eight feet to get out on the deck. And uh, he came out, and she came out right behind him. And I guess he grabbed her up by the crotch and around the shoulder, and he picked her up, and he had her over the side. And my engineer just, ha just so happened to be coming out to take a pee outside on the, on, in the water. And he looked out, and Todd's got this lady hanging over the side, outside the rail. And she is just screaming like a meme, you know, and swearing at him. And she was, she was still hating him for every minute of everything he, she had, you know. And then Clay went over there and grabbed them both and, and brought them back on board the boat. And then uh, I, I said, well, tell Todd, Todd to come up here and talk to me. So Todd came up and I said, Todd, man, what, what the hell are you doing? You know, you, what, are you, what, what were you going to do? He said, I was throwing her ass overboard. <laughs> and I, and I, said, I said, Todd, man, they put you in jail forever for that. He had this real squirrely look in his eye, and he kind of went, I was going to throw her overboard back. And I went, man, we got we to get this settled. So then I let her have her turn. And she comes up, and she was just, I mean, just a million miles an hour, and swearing at me and the whole thing. And I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I said, you go to your bunk and stay in your bunk, and don't get out of your bunk until we get back to Dutch Harbor. I said, we'll wake up, we'll feed you, but you two are not working together the rest of the trip. So that's what we did, and then during the rest of the trip, every about four days, here come a letter up to the pilot house from her. And I'm sorry, and I, you know, it was like a pretty bad deal, but we managed, we managed to get her back to Dutch Harbor and get her off. And, uh, somebody else had something right there. Ooh, ooh, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta have some. I don't have a picture of that plane. You know what? Back in those days, you, don't, you didn't have a camera. I mean, you didn't have your cell phone. You know, and if somebody had a camera, which we were lucky enough through the years, we had one guy that was a, uh, had a very nice camera, and he was a cook, and that was Joe Hughes, who uh, Jack and Eileen, who used to be involved with KBBI years ago, uh, was Jack's brother. Great guy. Fished with us for 15 years and uh, passed away from uh, pancreatic cancer, just like took him really quick, and he was, he was very well remembered. But, but anyway, um, um, shoot, what was I going to tell you about now? Can't get it. We're going to talk about the airplane. Oh, yeah. So Joe's out there with us, and we are in far western Aleutians between Attu and Kiska. And there's a long shot there, like 50, 70 miles where, you know, the only other thing over there is Shimia. So you're out way out in the open water. But this is one 
one day it was just glassy calm and a, maybe a six foot rolling ground swell and perfect weather for fishing. And I'm down on the deck hauling and um, the Coast Guard uh, C-130, which we hardly would ever see, comes rolling over top of me, just buzzing me, you know. And after about the third time, I thought, well, I, I was supposed to have a speaker on deck so you could hear all that stuff, but I didn't have it on. So I go up in the pilot house and I call him and he says, well, he says, there's a plane down in the water. And he says, but he says, you're the nearest guy to it and it's 80 miles away. And I went, 80 miles away. And so then he explains to me that it's a, a, a big Cessna and a float plane. And I'm going, what the heck is he doing way out here? Well, this guy was trying to do around the world, uh, uh, Guinness, Guinness Book of World Records, make a trip all the way around the world, left from, uh, I think he left from Seattle and went east and went all the way around and he stopped in Japan and was gonna make his trip up the chain and had oil failure and crashed the plane in the ocean. And uh, he was one guy and he had a life raft in the plane and he had every bit of equipment and he had some special letter from, um, what is the, what's the, the top place for the Air Force? Is that in Denver somewhere? Somewhere in the Midwest is the main Air Force Commandant and all of their people. But he had a letter from him that said, if you're going around the world and you're, you, you, know, you come across this guy, uh, please help him in all these different countries. You know, to plan all his stops and it landed on floats, you know, all the way across the, around the world. And uh, so we told the Coast Guard, said, okay, we were in the middle of hauling gear and had another string in the water and it was good fishing. And we had to just cut the gear and then we took off running for 80 miles, and I said, well, where's the Coast Guard cutter? And he said, well, the Coast Guard cutter's 370 miles from him, you know, and of course they're fast, so they could get there fairly quick, but I could get there quicker. So we go there and there's this airplane, and he tried to land, and when he did, he busted the front struts on the, on the floats, and the prop came down and hit the float and cut the front float open. But you know, they've got, um, um, divided compartments there that kept him floating and, and we get to him about midnight and he's out there standing on the float pumping away trying to keep himself afloat I mean it was hardly a breath of air moving and it was just perfect glass calm and so we get the guy off and get him on the, get him uh, inside and get him all dried off and and uh, you know we're getting ready to I, I call the Coast Guard and I said well can't you guys come over here and pick this airplane up with your crane and put it on your deck and they said, oh no, we, the, the cutter won't be able to do that. And, and they weren't gonna lift it with a helicopter because that was dangerous. And I'm getting ready to drive away from this airplane. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, there's a beautiful state-of-the-art airplane sitting right there and I'm gonna drive away. And, and uh, the guy, he was pretty upset about that, you know. And he was so nervous and exhausted that I went and put him in my bunk in the stateroom. And, you know, then I went down and I talked to the guys. I said, this is crazy to leave the, um, leave this plane out here in the ocean like this, you know? So the, the standard deal is on a crab boat or any big boats like that, that had what we call a vag boom, which is a real long boom, and you can move it left or right just to the width of the boat so you could move crab pots before, before they had cranes. And so the, the deal was, is when you were at sea, you should never move your boom outside of the, outside of the beam of the boat 
especially when you're in open water, for chance of rolling your own self over. So that's what it was going to take. And so we got out there, and I knew how to weld, and we made up this cross bracket that would hook into all four of the corners of, right over the cockpit and shackles and chain. And the guys got some, got their, some of their, uh, their bunk mattresses out of the bunk, and we, sl- we swung it over, and I said, okay, you know, we're going to try to lift it on the roll and everything. Well, about the time we went to pick it up, we didn't realize that the front struts were broken. So the plane comes up, but the struts are still in the water, and it's swinging and banging into the water. And one of my guys jumped over and got on the strut, and I'm going, oh, my God, somebody's going to get killed. You know, but ended up, we got, made it and got a lift. We got it lifted up and set it right on the deck, which took up the whole deck and is leaking air, aviation fuel all over. So we got, the, we got the deck hose running on the airplane, and we're thinking, oh, man, this guy's going to hate us for spraying it down in salt water. And we thought, well, you know, better than being on the bottom. So we got it all tied down, and the closest place was Shimia. So I said, well, that's 60 or 80 miles. So we were going to take it to Shimia, which was a you know, military base. And um, Shimia is like top secret. You can't get in there kind of a thing. So we had to call, and I was calling Barbara, and she was getting clearance and all that sort of stuff. And, and um, I wasn't calling Barbara. I was talking to Barbara on the radio at a very long distance. So it was like you, you might be able to talk one day out of five or six, you know. And um, anyway, so we, we uh, took them into Shimia, and about eight hours after we got them on board, here comes the Coast Guard cutter up right alongside me, you know, and talking to me and congratulating me, all that stuff. And he says, well, will you slow down a little bit? We're going to put our skiff in the water, and we want to pull up right alongside you with our skiff and take some photographs. I'm going, Okay, you know, where, wherever you say, Captain, you know, and, and not to be knocking the Coast Guard by any means, because I mean, my hat's off to those guys and about saved me more times than one. But anyway, um, um, so they took their pictures and they, you know, they just said, they escorted me to Shimia. And then when we got to Shimia, uh, uh, we, got the, we got the plane off and, uh, and then uh, left and went back to get our gear and I, I, we, we got some compensation for our gear loss and that stuff that took a long time. And the, the, they, uh, they got his plane out there and somehow another shipped him another engine and Shimmy had to put up with him for about a month. And uh, the, the commanding officer on Shimmy pulled right up next to the boat when I was at the dock with the thing and he says, well, you know, we don't have any equipment to lift it off or anything to do with it. And I said, look, man, I'm lifting this thing off, putting it in the water and I'm leaving. He said, you guys got it. And then they were figuring out, it was a Saturday, and he said, oh, no, 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 I want you to come to this meeting with me. So before we came to the meeting with me, he wanted to take me by the, uh, the officer's quarters. Oh, you guys need any beer or booze on the boat? I said, no, 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 we don't, we don't need any of that. You know, and so then he takes them there, and they draw it all out on the blackboard and figure out how they're going to get the plane pulled up with certain diameter line and all the tension and... Holy cow. I said, look, man, I'll give you a shot of line and get your tractor and get some rollers and we'll pull it up on the beach, you know. <laughs> so it was just a whole, whole different scenario there. But anyway, that, that, he, did, he, did make it, he did make it around the world, and uh, he finished his trip and wrote a book about it. And, uh, yeah, he was pretty, I mean, it was a, it was a world record. What's his name? Do you remember? Yeah. Don't ask me that. Uh, uh, no, I don't. So, um, 
Uh, so what else you guys want to talk about? The elbow room. Elbow room. Oh, that, that's embarrassing. A little bit of attitude adjustment there, and I'll be able to, I'll be able to talk a little better. Um, uh, elbow room was in 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 Unalaska, and the other part of Unalaska is Dutch Harbor, the military side. So basically, all the fishermen stayed on the Dutch Harbor side, and the only way to get to Unalaska was across a little bridge. And once you went over the bridge, then you were in the village of Unalaska, and that's where the elbow room was. And uh, most of our guys, you know, we tell them, look, man, don't cross the bridge tonight. If you're going to go to the bar, just go to the bar and get back on the boat and be done with it. Because after a 40-day trip, uh, each guy would get a draw, and we'd give them 500 bucks, and uh, they'd have a couple days' worth of doing their gear work and getting everything cleaned up on the boat. And then they were allowed to go up and get a hotel room if they wanted or go have a nice meal or, you know, go someplace where they could watch TV. But elbow room wasn't the best place to go. But anyway... Um, this particular night, they enticed me to go with them, and uh, I had a car in Dutch Harbor, so we all pile in this old beat-up station wagon, and we cross the bridge and go to the elbow room, and the elbow room wasn't probably a lot bigger than this, and when you came in the door, right when you came in the door, the door almost slammed into the stage, and the McLaughlin brothers, who were natives in, in, on the island there, they were always playing music in there, live music. And, um, and uh, so when you'd open the door, boy, the place would be blasting. And I'll never forget it. You, I, that night that we went in there, they're doing this ZZ Top skit. And they got the glasses on, and, and they're playing ZZ Top. And man, they're just ripping it up. And there's three pieces in a little, little teeny corner of a stage that they had there. And right next to the stage was um, uh, the ladies' bathroom. And uh, the bar had, of course, the great big elbow room bell that was, you know, big as, bigger than this thing right here, you know. I always wanted to find a way to get it, but I couldn't get it, you know. And, and the big deal was, is, you know, if you thought you were a hot shot or you come in with a, a trip or some crew member got a little too loaded, bing, he'd ring the bell and everybody in the house got a round of drinks. And so, you know, back in the day, that bell was going off, especially in the big crab days, that bell was going off a lot. So, you know, you, you couldn't hardly get out of there with getting loaded. And, um, and so I'm walking by the ladies' bathroom to go, go see uh, one of my old, old uh, Aleut friends in Dutch Harbor. And, um, and uh, his, his name was Alvin Bereshkin. And he calls me up every week to, to this day. And I talk to him. He was about 300 pounds. And he had the corner stool by the window. And that was Alvin's spot. And uh, since then, Alvin's quit drinking. and and uh, rehabbed himself and, and uh, still, doing, still doing fine. And I think, I'm not sure if Alvin was, eh, maybe not. I think his parents were. Um, when, when the war started, you know, they took, they took all the people out of Dutch Harbor. The Navy came in there and took everyone, all, all the allies out of there and took them and sent them all to the southeast. And if you know that story, it's, it's a sad one. But anyway, um, so I'm going by the ladies' bathroom, and my engineer gets this smart idea. There's a couple uh, uh, 
native girls going into the bathroom. And right when they're going to the bathroom, he comes behind me and shoves me into the back of them and in the bathroom and then puts his back up against the wall and he's holding the door and the girls are in there laughing at me in the bathroom with them. And I'm going, oh my God, you know, and I gotta get out of here. And it's right next to the band stage right there. And uh, so I bump on the door. Well, he's got his back up against it, got it blocked solid. So I rear back and I get a running start and I hit the door and I don't know what they put that door in there with maybe finish nails, but the whole frame and door <laughs> and everything came out with me on top of it and him under it. And he's under it and the sideboards had broken and a big splinter went right in his back. I mean, a big long splinter and he's bleeding like a hog. And, and, and so I'm trying to open the door or get off the door and let him get out from under it. And there's people dancing right there. Where, where you know, and then about that time, the rest of my crew was in there, and it started a big fight in the place. And everybody's starting to fight, and I'm going, oh my gosh, I gotta get everybody out of here. So we got all six of us, and we jumped out, and it was, it was like about a foot of snow on the ground, and snowing, and I had parked the, the, the Jeep right in front of the door of the elbow room. We opened the door of the elbow room. You almost had to, couldn't get the door of the Jeep open. And we're all running out to get into the, into the Jeep because we knew the cops were going to come, right? So we're trying to get out of there and we all get in the Jeep and I step on the gas and it's and we're not going anywhere. And so finally the guys get out and they push me out of there and we got to drive a mile and get across the bridge and back over to where the boat's tied up and I said, all right, all of you guys get on a boat, get on a boat and the cops can't come on the boat unless they got good reason to and, and we've done nothing. And so, and so, sure enough, here comes the cops, and they pull up there, and sure enough, I got one big boy on the boat, and he's got a great big mouth, and he loves to back talk the cops, you know. And he starts yakking, and I'm punching him and making him go downstairs to get away from the police. And, I, and we said, well, we don't know who did it, and it was a bunch of people in there fighting, and it wasn't us. And so the cops go, yeah, right, and they finally leave. And then the next morning, um, um, Sal Alaska, who was a, a lady that was an expediter in Dutch Harbor for years. She was almost kind of as famous as uh, Peggy Dyson in Kodiak, which was, was a, a super uh, announcer for the weather, and all the mariners depended on her through all those years. Uh, but she did, it, she did it for the Western Aleutians because Sally's radio, I mean, uh, um, Peggy's radio wouldn't reach that far. So she could talk to us or relay messages from Barbara and all that stuff to me. And, take orders and groceries and all that sort of thing. And so uh, uh, Sally called me up the next morning. She says, oh, Pat, she says, the owner of the elbow room is really pissed off at you. And they said, uh, you're going to have to be doing something about that here real soon. And I, so I said, Sally, all right. She said, well, I said, I'm, I'm leaving first thing right now. And she says, well, I'll cover you and um, expenses for, for all of that. And uh, she did, and next time we got to town, I had to go and apologize to the owner, and they let us back in. And <laughs> okay, throw another one at me. Giant squid. I'm sorry? Giant squid. Giant squid. Um, there's a place uh, inside of Seaguam Island on the Pacific side. It's got 
real deep water there. And I've always heard from people that um, there were giant squid there, and we fished in that depth a lot. Um, but you would never catch one on a hook, hardly ever. Um, but um, we were anchored up there in Summer Bay, uh, more close to Amchitka, actually, one day uh, when the weather was bad. And everybody, um, everybody would um, um, get out and try to stretch their legs on the beach and do all those sort of things. And uh, sure enough, we go down the beach, and here there is. A, there's a giant squid laying in the water, and he's like almost alive, but you could tell he'd been scarred up and probably probably bitten by a sperm whale, but not really, you know, cut into or cut up. And and we're thinking, man, how can we get him back and cut him up for bait? You know, because squid's really good blackhawk bait. And we're in the hood. I, I wrote it down in my logbook. The hood was seven feet long, wow. and the and the tentacles were like thirty some feet. You know, end to end, it was it was a huge one. But it it, uh, it was like it was like a quarter mile away, and it was like you couldn't pick it up or move it. It was just, and it was it was gonna die right there, and it had been wounded somewhere. I'm sure in the deep by a whale, and that was that's kind of not much of a story, but. It was unusual to ever even see one. Okay, Pat, excuse me. Uh, the kids are ready to go home. I'll go ahead and take them. And uh, you just had three orcas right by your front door. I just got a call from Shannon. They took a seal almost off the steps of your house across the back. Oh, boy. <laughs> My favorite friends. <laughs> Good night, boys. Good night, Lavea. Oh yeah, don't forget your popcorn. Okay, um, uh, other stories that you see written there that might be of some interest? Um, don't, have, don't have a picture of that one. No, we don't. Uh, uh, well, like I said, my brother and I uh, grew up in Virginia. And uh, my dad was a military man, so um, he was uh, he was in a glider in D-Day, and he was at uh, he was uh, at uh, Bastogne when the Germans had uh, Bastogne surrounded on Christmas Day, and they said this is going to be the turn of the war right here. And then he was part of the 101st, some of the first guys to go into the Eagle's Nest, and then that was the end of the war. He stayed there through the end of the war for another 30 days or something. Just like the movie Band of Brothers. I mean, when I watched that movie, I expect to see my dad's name anywhere in it. But anyway, um, uh, so when he retired, then he, then he went to Korea. And after that, then he went to the reconstruction of Japan, where my brother and my sister were. And then when he got home and retired, he was, he was 46. My mom was 44 when I was born. And said, you know, I want to have another kid. So that's what he ended up with with me. <laughs> and, and so this little town I lived in was an a island town in Chesapeake Bay. And uh, uh, there was like probably only about 3,000 people, about like the size of Homer was at the same time when I came to Homer in 65, you know. It was just a little small town. And everybody there made their living commercial fishermen. They called them commercial watermen there. And uh, they all did oyster fishing and crab fishing. And I saw those guys and I looked at their hands, looked like bear paws, and they had biceps like footballs, you know. And, and uh, I, I just wanted to be like those guys so bad. I just thought that was the coolest thing. And uh, my mom and dad, we were like newcomers to the community. 
And that community, I mean, like everybody in that town was Hopkins Forest, Freeman. I mean, it would have like been all the names off the Mayflower. I mean, those people did never, ever move. And they were like five generations of it. And, and they didn't go anywhere very far. And uh, I still talk to my old high school bus driver, who's 93, and she, and she drove the bus for 45 years. And she's gonna love to hear this. She, oh, she'll be all over this, you know. And uh, anyway, so I always wanted to be what they called a muddy toter. So the commercial fishermen in those years weren't making much money. The Chesapeake Bay was dying pretty quickly in those years when I grew up. In the earlier years, I mean, they, they said, they said there was enough oysters in the Chesapeake Bay to filter the entire volume of water in one day. And the, and the Chesapeake Bay was about the size of Cook Inlet, but it, was only, it, was, it wasn't more than 100 foot deep anywhere in it. It was an estuary, uh, but perfect for oysters and crab and, and that sort of thing. And uh, so the commercial fishermen in those days were not the upper class people in town. And where my dad moved in as a military man, he was, I mean, he was, average income guy and we, we bought a piece of property there that was maybe four feet above sea level the rest of the people lived at sea level and every time the northwest wind blew blew the tide came right in your yard and every day when i drove around on the bus to go to school you'd see the tide in the ditches and you'd see you go by the waterfront all over the place knowing what the tide or whatever was doing and the big hurricanes come of course it flood them out terribly but um Anyway, so they called those guys the muddy toters. And then the people that lived up on the higher land where we were three or four foot above tide level, they called them the hay seeders because there might have been two or three, four farms on the whole island. There wasn't there that much farming in that, in that part of the country there. And um, so one particular night, I, made, I, I grew up with all those people because I was born there. So I grew up with all those kids. So they kind of accepted me, even though I had a weird name and really didn't have the accent, but I, I worked on it for 20 years and still have some of it and, and get a few drinks in me and I got a lot of it. But anyway, uh, 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 the, the old muddy toters, there was, there was one kid in high school when I was about the eighth grade and he was like, should have been in the 11th grade, but he was in the eighth grade. And he was, about, he was about six foot tall and 180 pounds, had a beard, wore engineer boots and a knife in his, in his boot all the time and was getting suspended from school all the time. And boy, he did not like me. And he was a bully, you know, and he loved to be bullying. And I was spending the night down there on what they called the ridge where all the old fishermen lived and was staying with one of my buddies. And right before dark, we were gonna all play tag out there at this cemetery that was there. And in that area, they had nothing but old pine trees that were like, you know, 70 feet up, 50 feet up before you even got a limb, you know? And so um, that, this one particular tree there had, a, uh, had like 22 before us nailed on it, like steps, you know, to get up to the top. And uh, we're playing tag, and of course, old Richie, he gets to be, uh, gets to be it. Well, I was, I was like the smallest guy in the eighth grade. I was a little teeny wire of a kid, but I could scramble and run, and all of that and climb trees so so richie gets it and uh he sees where i am and i come out of hiding and i run to that tree and boy i scamper up those those two befores like of nothing some were kind of weak and teetery and i'm going up the top of the tree and i get up the top of the tree well all the rest of the guys they all they all come out from hiding you know and they're going get him richie get him richie get him you know richie's struggling up those big old trees up those things and they're they're about to drop him but he's 
keeps coming and he keeps coming. And then when he gets, starts getting close, I break off some branches, some pine branches, and I start whacking him in the face. You know? And oh man, he's really getting mad. And I mean, he was, he was serious, man. I'm gonna throw you out of here. He says, bat me right, I'm throwing you out of here. You know? He keeps coming and he keeps coming and he gets me right up into the very top of the branches. Everybody's hollering, get him, Richie, get him, Richie. Only thing I could do, think to do was pull down my zipper and I started peeing right in his <laughs> So, so I had a pretty good stream going, and I was letting him in. And I was showing no mercy, and Richie backed right down that tree and got down at the bottom of the tree, and everybody was getting dark, and everybody went home, and Richie parked his butt right at the bottom of that tree. And like, oh, man, you know. And uh, so he didn't, he didn't leave till about midnight, and I got in all kinds of trouble because I didn't get home because Richie had me up the tree. But, but, but then, then uh, two years later, we're at a high school dance, and uh, in a building not much bigger than this, and chairs all lined around it, and the, the high school garage band playing with a, with a, a, a what do you call them, a, a strobe light behind the fan, you know, and they were playing Jimi Hendrix, and we all thought we were cool. And, and uh, the, the guys that were smoking, they were all standing out on the front porch because they wouldn't let you smoke inside. And we're standing outside, and Richie's there. And uh, Richie finds me, grabs me, picks me right up over his head, and throws me in this deep ditch right beside the deal. And as I'm coming up out of the ditch, I find a rock and I wing it and hit him right in the ear. And boy, he was really mad then. But he wasn't near as fast as me. I come out of that ditch and went down the road and I'd never seen Richie again since I left and came to Alaska. And then, <laughs> then I went back and visited my mom and dad and my sister. And I had told my son, Patrick, who was about, he was about old as Cohen is now 10. And uh, we're in the 7-Eleven one night in the town. And we're in there, and I'm going to get a six-pack of beer, and I'm in the back corner of the store. And we look, and there's Richie. And he's got a case of beer. And he, and he, he, sets, it, he sets it up on the counter. And I told Pat, I said, Pat, there's Richie. And he went, Dad, is that him, the guy you peed on? <laughs> and I went, I was a yep. And he said, well, we can't go up there, can we? I said, yeah, I think we're going to have to. So we go up, we go up there, you know, and, and uh, he had that real heavy slang. He said, I'll be in here, that's old Pat McBride right there, Pat McBride. He looked at me, I'm kind of old. And a little, little Pat, he's standing right beside me. Richie says, well, welcome home, man. And then he walks away. And that was kind of the end of the bully story. But, <laughs> Oh, my word. Well, Nick's Taxi, everybody knows who Nick Taxi is. Well, we, we, we got into a schedule of, uh, of uh, the, the Aleutians was open for Blackhawk every year, January 1. The Gulf didn't open until April in those days. And so most of the schooner fleet that I showed you there earlier, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't even leave Seattle until April because they, they, they didn't have the boats to fight that weather that was in the Aleutians. So we were fishing, I think we did, well, I know I got it recorded, but we did 10 years in a row, leaving here December 28th, and the boat fished an average of 280 days a year at sea. And we'd rotate crews, 
and we'd have two, a crew and a half. So every 40 days you could get off, or every 90 days you could get off, whichever way you wanted it. And um, uh, uh, this particular time, what am I daggone talking about now? The, oh yeah, Nick, yeah. So, so, so we're gonna leave December 28th. Got a good crew, got everybody's ready to go. I told the guy that said on the 27th, I said, look, the weather's good, we can get through the Barrens and, and head to Dutch Harbor. And if we left on the 28th, we could be in Dutch Harbor on uh, New Year's Eve and set gear right outside of Dutch Harbor and start our season. And uh, I come down that morning and I tell old Clay Vorvac, who was a homer boy, um, told Clay, I said, go down and start the main. He said, Pat, there's no need to start the main. I said, what do you mean? He said, we don't have a cook. I said, what do you mean we don't have a cook? He says, the cook and one of the crew members is in jail. I went, man, come on. You know? So I call Barbara up and Barbara says, well, let's go down and see the magistrate and see what's going on. I'm going, nah, I don't know. But I didn't have a cook and it was important for us to get going. And um, I'm not calling any names about cooks or who or anyway, anyway but we're, um, he'd been fishing with me a couple of years. And uh, so we go down and we got to go down to the, the courthouse and we go down to the courthouse and there's going to be a, what do you call it, arraignment at 10 o'clock in the morning. So we go down to the courthouse and Barbara happened to be a good friend. Or, were you in a sorority with her or something, weren't you? The, the judge, um, oh, I better, better, better not say any names. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the good old days, you know. And, and so uh, Barbara knew the judge and there was, you know, like six or seven people in there. Well, when it came to his trial, here he comes out and he's handcuffed and he's got the, he's, he's like, he's like six foot three and he's, he's 250 pounds and he's, we called him the Pillsbury Doughboy because he was pretty soft. He wasn't all muscle built, you know, but he, he had a lot of extra fat on him and he had this t-shirt on that was a large, which should have been an extra, extra large. So, so his belly button and half of him's hanging out off the bottom and he's handcuffed and both his eyes are blackened because he was fighting with the cops. And I'm going, oh my word, you know. And on his t-shirt, it says, food is poison, sleep is death, kill cod. <laughs> and, I'm, and a lot of, a lot of the guys in those days were wearing those t-shirts. And I'm going, holy mackerel, man. You know, you look so terrible. And he's standing up there and he wouldn't even hardly look at me, you know. And, and when I saw that, I got up and I started out of the courthouse. I went, I'm, I'm not doing this. And Barbara comes behind me. Well, his uncle was there. And his uncle says, he met me out in the foyer there. He said, come on, Pat. He said, give the boy a chance. He's a good boy. He, he, just, he just messed up, man. And he, give him a chance. And, and uh, I said, well, I said, all right, maybe we will. Well, what they had done is they got off the boat that night, went to the porpoise room, and Nick was there with his taxi outside, left it running because it was snowing like crazy. And he was up there drinking coffee. Well, they walk by the cab and think, oh, there's a good ride uptown. <laughs> so they jump in, 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 the, in the cab, take off and go uptown, and Nick called the cops. Cops had a roadblock sitting right at the top of the spit, right through the roadblock they went, <laughs> round, round the corner and all the way down there to uh, where Willie Flem had a gas station there, which I don't even know what's there anymore. But they ran right by the gas pumps and in the plate glass windows and wow. tore the car up and tore Nick's rig up and so that's that's what they were and so the judge looked up at me though so I went back in sat down and uh, the judge said uh, 
Barbara and I, do you know this fellow? And I said, yeah, he's the cook on the boat. And we were just getting ready to leave. And she looked over her glass at me and said, if you get this man out of my town right now, and you pay his bail and take him to Dutch Harbor, I don't ever want to see him in town again. <laughs> so I said, yes, ma'am, we will. And away we went. And the following December 28th, the next year, he was in jail again. So that was poor old Nick, I think, got abused through the years by the fishing crew a number of times. Got time for about one more, Pat. All right. Crows in the oven? How about oh, the skip packs that have been China food? I'd like to hear that story. Well, we probably fit it in if, you, if anybody wants to stay that long. Um, let me get my throat a little wet. Before I forget, Barbara, will you pull that off of there for me? Pull it on. The cup holder. Hold this one? Yeah, you know, take the lid off. I want to show them the, the inside. Can we do that? Inside of what? What Kathy made. Oh. So our, our, our good friend Kathy, who's been helping me out with my injury and trying to help me get my motion back, um, who is known for her handle work, which is amazing all over the world, um, she's trying to help me to get my fingers work again. And uh, I, you know, I've pretty much given up on all of it because it's just the way I gotta live my life. And I was having this terrible problem swallowing because C4 is right there that controls your swallow valve and all that. When you, when you do that, you don't swallow very well. People who have strokes and people uh, who have bad uh, injuries like that, they don't swallow well. They told me, you know, you're gonna have to eat thickened food and you're gonna have to eat, you know, jello and pudding and or you either get a tube put in your stomach and they give you a shot full of food every day and I went I'm not going there and then they tried to teach me with with a singing class how to get my la 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 back together and I couldn't even do la 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 and didn't even really want to but what would happen is every time I drink out of a normal straw it would aspirate my lungs and it'd go into my lungs and then at nighttime sometimes Barbara would have to come and put two hands together and push on my chest or right on my diaphragm, just like the Heimat maneuver to help me cough up whatever was in my lungs. And sometimes she'd do it every hour all night long. And say, my grandson even knows how to do it. And he pushes on me when I got a cough and I can cough up the little bit of phlegm. It's not much, but it, it gets caught in your airway and it blocks your airway off. And if, if you're not breathing through your nose, you're a dead man. So Barbara's been doing that for Years we've been dealing with that. And then Kathy came along and showed me that straw. And you see how it's made like that, like a crazy straw that you see, uh, this plastic. And uh, Kathy got me doing that. And I don't ever cough anymore. And they say, I think from, they say that, um, they say that uh, if, you, if you weren't breastfed, you didn't learn how to suckle right and your, your, your swallow valve does not have that real strength that you'd learn. So, so the, the crazy straws are usually out of fiberglass, but um, I couldn't drink my coffee through them because it melt the coffee, I mean, melt the straw. So I bought some stainless steel and had a buddy of mine and we, uh, Mike Edwards, and we had Mike and I wrapped it up just like the crazy straw. And so now it's my everyday drinking straw and I don't, I don't drink a thing th uh, at all, all day except through that. And I don't have any more aspiration or, I had pneumonia four times from it, you know, and it just, it couldn't get it to go away. And it was 
because all of it was, was going down the wrong pipe. Wow. Uh, so back to, back to where we were, where were we, where were we next? Oh boy. Um, I, I don't mind telling this story only because people need to know about it. And uh, there, I think most of you probably heard me speak before and know about this, but I came over the Bering Sea one year on the boat and um, uh, it, it went straight to China Poot, of course. And, and my son was just, what, three years old or something then? What, Pat? what story are you uh, The skiff accident, yeah. Oh, he was six. Yeah, he was six years old, I guess. And um, anyway, I came home and uh, after three or four days, I talked to Dave Brown on the phone and he had shot a moose out East Road and, and uh, he thought maybe there was a brown bear in the area. So I, I was all anxious to go hunting anyway. And I told Dave, I said, well, I'll be over there in the morning and I'll go back with you and help you get the rest of the meat out. So I get up in the morning like 6.30 or 7. All night long we hear a big storm blowing out on the bar out there, big minus tides. So uh, I get up in the morning, I tell Barbara, I said, well, I'll call you in an hour from town. And because um, there weren't any real good phones, I was going to call you from the phone up at the bank for some reason. But anyway, I had to, would have had to drive all the way uptown, so I gave myself enough time. So I go out of the house, and I'm not, I mean, if you know where our place is in China Poot, it's not, not 20 minutes or 30, not even that far from the rip. And uh, I get out there, and I'm looking at the rip, and it's a low tide, and I know that's dangerous. And uh, uh, I uh, was watching the westerly wind, and it was still ebbing, so the rip was standing up there four or five feet, uh, all the way across the entrance of China Poot, but there was a deep channel going out of China Poot where there was green water all the time. So I sit there and I idle and I counted the rhythm of the waves and I counted the rhythm of the waves and I figured out when there was the blank spot to be able to get through. And I only had to get through a 20 yard spot and I'd be on the back side of the rip and out of it. And uh, so and I counted and I watched and I counted and I watched and all of a sudden I saw that green water and I ran right in the hole and started to go through there and just about the time I got halfway through, here come a big one boiling up and right in front of me. So when I saw it coming, I ran like a surfer, you know, I ran down from where the breaker was and jumped over it on the green water side of it. And when I jumped over on the green water side of it and came down, I came down in a little bit of a funny angle and I looked at it again and the next one was all white and it was breaking hard. And I just covered my head up and it took the boat up sideways and flipped over and I was afraid the, uh, afraid the console was gonna hit me in the head. But it didn't, it, I went right straight to the bottom and into the sand. My hair was all full of sand after we, I got out of it all, but um, I came to the surface and I had my Stormy Seas jacket on, which had one of those CO2 jobs in it. And I go pull a CO2 job and no CO2 in it. And I had just come back from Dutch Harbor and I was wearing that and the, the, the ticket agent took it out of my vest and said, you can't have that on the plane. And so I didn't think that, you know, I ain't going to reload it. So then I had to blow the, the air tube up on there, which just kind of gives you a little horse collar life jacket. It's not much of a life jacket. And the skiff was from here to the back wall from me, upside down, and maybe just, just the bow of it, maybe as much of that table sticking out of the water because the 70 horse had it down, you know, down underwater in the stern at about a 45-degree angle. And I swam over to that, and then I looked at the cliffs right there, which it was smashing against. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going to get tore up right there on this thing. But there was a funny thing about that that I never knew. There's a back eddy right there, and the tide was going out, but it was sucking me towards Halibut Cove and Peterson Bay. 
And so I get a hold of the skiff, and the only thing that I knew from the teaching that uh, Lane Chesley here in town with all the life raft stuff taught us all fishermen that, you know, you need to get in fetal position right away, you know, not to lose your body heat. So I got in fetal position, and I'm hanging on to this skiff, and the next thing you know, I'm going all the way around by Peterson Beach over there where there's that cave on Peterson Beach on that side over there. And, I, and I'm hanging on to the skiff, and there's some campers in the, in the, uh, in the cave, and I thought, oh boy, I'm gonna get saved right here. And they go down and they're brushing their teeth down on the edge of the salt water, and I'm screaming and I'm hollering and I'm whistling and I'm doing everything I could do. And I, and I raised my arms up and started swinging my arms uh, to, so they'd see me because they were, they were those red sleeves on those gray uh, Stormy Seas jackets. And when I raised my arms up, man, I just felt the heat just go just right out of me. So I just curled right back up and got in the fetal position. And then the uh, only thing left to do was start praying. And I, prayed every prayer I knew how to pray for, for about another uh, half an hour. And then I thought, well, I'm gonna be lost here. So I tied my, my wrist into the bow line because I thought somebody will find me for, instead of being lost off the boat. And uh, I carved Pat and Barbara's name in the bottom of the hall and said, I love you. And whew, it was, uh, and it was exactly an hour and 56 minutes that I was in the water. Because I knew from, I had my, my little Timex watch on kept ticking, and and I looked at the, I looked at my watch when I hit the water and I went, oh man, I just left the house 15 minutes ago. Barbara's not even going to start calling rescue, it's you know, for uh, <laughs> for that for that amount of time. So, um, only thing I can tell you, about, about, so uh, I'm I'm in the water and now I'm going to hit. Peterson Rocks over on the north side of Peterson Bay there, just before you go into Halibut Cove. I was all the way that far away, and, um, and somebody in Peterson, in Peterson Bay was looking out wanting to go fishing, and somehow or another they saw me with their binoculars, and they come up and they pull up an aluminum skiff, and they pull right up next to me and gonna get ready to start lifting me out of the water. And I looked up on them and I said, did you guys bring the morning paper? <laughs> And where that came from, I have no idea. And so they pulled me in the skiff and threw a tarp over me, and I said, "Take me to take me to China Poot, right over there on at the uh, lagoon behind China Poot." So they took me right in there, and I just laid under there and shivered. But it didn't take but five, ten minutes to get over there. And as soon as it hit the beach, I jumped out and started walking for my brother's lodge there. And um, as the uh, as I'm going to the lodge, they're going, wait, 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 you can't go, you can't go. I said, man, I, I got to get warm, you know, and I'm going and I'm walking, and I walked a whole mile down to our cabin and started hollering for Barbara, and she comes out of the cabin uh, crying and hollering for me because she had called, a, you know, build a craft at the Coast Guard, and everybody, but they were looking down tide from China Poot for me because of everybody thinking the tide was running out, and I was the wrong way. And uh, anyway, so she got me in the house, and we just had a loft in the cabin, and stripped me down naked and she did too and we got in bed and just held on to each other for about 12 hours and I never even went to the hospital. And I mean, we, we all thought, you know, you can only be in the water for 15 minutes without a survival suit. And I had a survival suit in the boat and a radio and a VHF and the whole thing, but it was all, you know, 10 feet under. So the only thing I can tell everybody about going into China Poot is, is, you know, I've spent all those years at sea and here it happened to me and lived there all those years and it happened to me, but you don't try to get out of China Poot on a westerly wind. When it's westerly, coming from Augustine, just don't think about it. 
But you can go in there on a flood tide. Everybody wants to go up there and get the reds nowadays, and that's what always worries me, because you want to go in the reds, get the reds on the high tide. And then everybody's up there, and right about the high tide peaks, as soon as it peaks, the rip starts going out. And if it's westerly, you're going to have a hell of a rip. So what you want to do is instead of going into the rip, you go towards Augustine, and you head out over the bar at Augustine and go towards Augustine and then cut back towards the harbor once you get past Gull Island and you miss the rip. But if it's westerly and it's going to be a low tide, just forget it. And if you, if you, if you get out there and you see the bar um, ripping like that and it scares you, just come right over and stay at our house or our mooring. I mean, really, I mean, really and truly, you can do that because it's no sense testing it. And I know, I know three, four deaths that have been there through the years since we've been there because of that rip. So I don't, you know, it's funny when you, when you have a, a horrific accident like that, Barbara and I couldn't even talk about that for the first 10 years. We didn't, we didn't I mean, the newspaper came and interviewed me because I'd been in the water for so long, you know, and that was unheard of. But um, you can't, you can't, uh, I don't know, we just never talked about it. It was really hard for me to start telling people about it, but I want people to know so it doesn't happen to them, you know. <laughs>